Eucharist. We've been looking the last couple of weeks on the Eucharist as sacrifice. And we began last week, uh, in particular, looking at Abraham. Abraham. And how with the Eucharist as sacrifice, God began to establish covenant. We looked at the Eucharist as a meal, uh, a sacred meal. Now we're looking at it as sacrifice. And with the sacrifice comes covenant. We begin to see our God as a covenant God. We begin to see God's covenant heart in this whole picture of the Eucharist. And so we looked at Abram last week and the covenant that God cut, to use biblical terminology, He cut covenant with Abram. And we continue that this morning. Calling. Would you say that with me? Calling. Say it again. Calling. It comes from the Latin word vocare. Vocare. And if you think about it for a moment, you may be able to think of other words that come from that word. Vocare means to call. And it means the work a person is called by God to do. It's also related to the word vocatio. Vocare, vocatio. The related words, just like families have relatives, these words are relatives with each other. Vocatio. And you can imagine, I'm sure, what word we get from that. The word vocation. Vocation. Vocation is another word for calling. Vocation. Say it with me. Vocation. Your vocation is your voice. Vocare, to call. Voice. Vocation. You see how all of these words are related. The Quakers have a saying about calling that I love. Let your life speak. Let your life speak. The beauty of God's voice joined with yours. God's calling on your life, His vocation, meeting with your voice, who you are, who He has created you to be, how He has put you together and wired you, if you will. Let your life speak. God's voice joined with yours. However, there is also the din and drone of all different kinds of voices around you calling you. In all different kinds of directions and to all different kinds of work, we know this. We wrestle with this. God's voice to us and His vocation, His calling in the midst of all of these other voices we're hearing. We, we especially, uh, our younger generations are familiar with this as they seek to find their pathway. We call them career paths. But really, what they are yearning in their hearts to know is their vocation. 
God, what is your calling for me? And there's all these other voices all around us telling us what we need to do, directions we need to go. Uh, All of these good voices, some of them not so good, but many good voices, all well-meaning voices. But what what we want and what we need is the voice of God calling out, discerning His voice. That's the challenge in the midst of the din and drone of all these other voices. I remember sitting down with my high school guidance counselor. We called them uh, then. I don't know what they're referred to now in your schools, students, but high school guidance counselor. And he was having that conversation with me. I think this was about grade 11. And he was having this conversation with me about what my career path wanted to be. And I knew at this point I had discerned God's voice of calling on my life to vocational pastoral ministry. But he didn't get it. That didn't register with him. So he tried to point me in other directions. Uh, He was very, you know, patronizing. Oh, that's nice. But why don't you think about this instead? And he was really set on making me a baker. I don't know why, whether I just had that Pillsbury Doughboy look to him or I'm not sure why. It turns out I, I, I ended up being a baker of, of bread anyway. I try to feed you some good bread each week. Um, but that's what he was set on. But I knew that, that was, he just did not get it. But we need to lock on to in the midst of all these other voices, and many of them good and well-meaning, what we're looking for, what we're seeking to discern is God's voice. His calling, His voice joined with ours so that our life might speak the way He designed it to speak. And by the way, uh, there's more than one calling. The only calling that's out there is not just to pastoral ministry. You are called just as much as I am called. And your calling looks very different from mine, but it does not make it any less a calling from God. You may be called to the field of education. You may be called to the field of technology. You may be called to the field of engineering. You may be called to the field of healthcare. Whatever it may be, music, the arts, all of these different callings, all God's callings on our life, we're looking for and seeking to discern His voice in the midst of the din and drone of all of these other voices that are always going on around us pointing us in different directions, pulling us to different sorts of work. And so that is the challenge, discerning and finding out which is the voice of God rather than the voice of significant others in our lives, rather than the voice of society, say, or the superego, or even the voice of our own self-interest. By and large, and this is how I've tried to counsel uh, people, young people, young adults over the years as I worked with them for many years, there is a, a good rule, a good simple rule for finding out what your vocation is. 
The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you need most to do. That you need most to do. And B, that the world most needs to have done and needs you to do. If you really get a kick out of your work, you've presumably met requirement A. Requirement A was the work that you need most to do. And if you get a kick out of your work and you're enjoying your work, you've presumably met requirement A. But if your work is writing TV deodorant commercials, the chances are you've missed requirement B. Requirement B was the work that the world most needs you to do. The world right now, uh, writing TV deodorant commercials is fine, but that's not really something that the world most needs. You might think, well, you don't know my world, Pastor. We need. So if, if you're getting a kick out of your work, but your work is writing TV deodorant commercials, the chances are you've missed requirement B. On the other hand, let's flip the the coin a little bit. If your work is being a doctor in a leper colony, you have probably met requirement B, something the world most needs is in great need of. But if most of the time while you're doing that, you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you have not only bypassed A, the work that is you most need to do, that you get a kick out of, that floats your boat and lights your fire and gives you a, a charge for living. You've not only bypassed A because you're bored and depressed, but you probably aren't helping your patients much either. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I'll say that again. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. You are doing what you know you were made to do. And you are enjoying doing it. And while you're doing it, you are meeting the world's deep hunger. A need that needs to be met. And you are called to do it. God's calling on your life. Now, this isn't a message about, you know, 10 steps to find your vocation or anything like that. But the reason I'm introducing our time together with this is because we've been considering these covenants of God. His covenant with Abram. And their objective of divine human communion that is involved in them. God's objective in cutting covenant is because He longs to know intimacy of communion and union with humankind, His creation. 
We looked at the fall in Genesis. And now God's process of beginning to restore and rescue humankind is through covenant as we're looking at now in the Older Testament with Abram. And this morning we're going to be looking at Moses and the prophets and David and God's calling involved with them. His calling. Because with this covenant and the sacrifice that's involved with it, there is calling. His calling on the lives of these individuals. Abram, and now this morning, Moses and David and the prophets. This next great covenant that we're going to look at and calling that God makes with Israel is associated with Moses and the exodus from Egypt. Like so many of the heroes of Israel, Moses had to be tested. Abram, we saw, was tested in being called to offer up his son Isaac. Moses, as well, is to be tested before he was ready for God's mission. This child of privilege. This child that was born, if you will, with a silver spoon in his mouth. We know that his mother, we learn that he's really a Hebrew. But he doesn't come to realize that till later on because his mother, you remember the story, placed him in a basket in the river. And one of the Pharaoh's wives found him and took him and raised him. And so he was raised Egyptian and thought he was indeed Egyptian for many years. We're not told how he came to realize that he wasn't. That's left ambiguous in the Scriptures. It's not explicitly laid out for us. But he was born into privilege. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh, who then, after learning his own real Hebrew identity, as Moses comes to learn, and then killing an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave, now that he knew he was Hebrew, he didn't like the way his brothers and sisters, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, were being treated as slaves. And so he kills an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave. And then he flees in fear. Exodus chapter 2, you'll find this. We don't have time to read through all of this in the Scriptures, but this is the summary of what takes place. And so Moses takes off in fear. And then he was compelled to wander for many years in the desert, in the wilderness. And as he does so, he learns the humble ways of a shepherd. God shapes him and builds him and remakes him and molds him all in line with his call. On Moses' life. It's amazing how God uses wilderness in our lives, yes? To build us. These years of pandemic have been like a wilderness in many ways. And God has been seeking through it, despite all of the hardships and difficulties and frustrations 
and all that's come with it, God has sought to redemptively use it to build us and shape us if we are willing. It's nothing new. We see this in the Scriptures. He uses the wilderness to build Moses. God wanted Moses not to lord it over people he would be called to lead, but to guide them and sacrifice for them as a shepherd does for sheep. And only after this wilderness trial did Moses see then, the story, this is the story that we're all so familiar with, the burning bush. After this wilderness experience, he has this encounter with the, the burning bush. And he hears the vocare. He hears the voice of God. Connecting with the voice of who Moses is. And announcing the divine name to Moses. Remember? I am who I am. Say that with me, will you? I am who I am, God says in response to Moses. Moses says, who should I tell them has sent me? As God was giving, putting, expressing his call on Moses' life, I want you to go. I want you to lead my people out. I want you to. And Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And this divine title, so puzzling, so puzzling, so abstract, I am who I am. What God was saying to Moses was, I am not one being among many. I am not a local divinity who can be manipulated or avoided like the pagan gods that you are so familiar with, Moses. Rather, God is the Creator. The One who suffuses all things even as He radically transcends them. And this means that He can be neither grasped nor contained nor avoided. He can be neither controlled nor ignored. I am who I am. And so having encountered this God in whose presence trust is the only proper response, Moses was ready for God's mission. And as I trust we've come to expect, this mission would involve self-surrender and sacrifice. Loved ones, God's call on your life to whatever field it may be, and with every face in this room, the field is different. For some, you are called to uh, motherhood or fatherhood. That is a very noble vocation. For some, again, engineering, education, all of these various callings and fields that are ready, there will be sacrifice involved. And self-surrender. Knowing that you are following the call of God on your life. God sent His servant Moses back to Egypt. Think about this. Moses ran away from Egypt. 
God sends him back there. He sends him back to the place, probably the last place Moses wanted to go. He sends his servant back to Egypt to the place where his people were enslaved. And he gave him the charge of leading the captives to freedom. He was to go into the heart of darkness in the land of oppression and through his own blood and sweat and obedience to lead the Israelites back to liberty and right worship with God. Moses' dangerous confrontations with the Pharaoh as well as his patient endurance with his own people's complaints and grumblings and criticisms were part of the sacrifice that he was making. The self-surrender. The laying down of his own life. And on the eve of the escape, Moses told the people to gather in small groups and to prepare the Passover lamb. And we already looked at this a little bit when we looked at the Eucharist as a sacred meal. Prepare a Passover lamb. The sacred banquet was indeed, as we saw in our previous studies, the reenactment of humanity's long-lost intimacy with God. But we mustn't forget that it was made possible by the bloody sacrifice of an animal. For Israel, therefore, the Passover meal was to be a continual reminder of the price paid for freedom and communion. Once escaped from oppression, the people under Moses' shepherd leadership came to Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, where they were given the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Provided instruction, they did, for an interior renewal of the covenant community. Through them, the children of Israel were, at least in principle, pulled back into shape and reformed as a people who love God above all things and who engage consistently in the works of compassion and justice. The Ten Commandments' objective, God in giving them, was for all of this. At their worst, they reacted and continued to react rather violently against these commands, seeing them as arbitrary external impositions. But God intended them as a sort of life-giving sacrifice, a painful but ultimately beneficial remaking of the sinful self. Now, the interior sacrifice of the law, the Torah, would be accompanied by an exterior sacrifice. Having declared the law and heard 
the acquiescence of the people to comply, that the people were willing to submit to the law, Moses, what does he do? So there's this interior sacrifice that the law is calling the people of God to, a self-surrender for the purpose of life and life to the limits in God. But the people weren't seeing it that way, and so they pushed back against it. But as God seeks to bring them to a place of acquiescence and agreement and peaceful agreement to surrender and walk with Him in this, God also calls and gives instruction for an exterior sacrifice. Moses ordered the slaughter of oxen for the well-being of Israel. And then he, read it together with me. The scripture, I believe, is on the screen here for us. Coming, coming, coming. Everybody, just wave your hand at the screen or something. There it is, all right? Read this together with me, nice and loud. Moses drained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. So the idea, what is going on here? The idea behind this practice is straightforward enough. The splashing of the blood on the people signaled God's pledge of fidelity, His lifeblood, to them. And the splashing on the altar represented Israel's reciprocal pledge of fidelity to Yahweh, faithfulness to Yahweh, each saying to the other, in effect, God to the people, the people to Yahweh, as this blood is poured out, so will my life be poured out for you. You see, God wasn't calling the people to anything. He Himself was not also willing to give. As the blood is sprinkled on the people, God is saying, I will be faithful to you. I will be your God. I will pour myself out for you. As the blood is sprinkled on the altar, it's signaling the people saying in response, we will be faithful to you, O God. We will obey. We will follow your path of life. We will pour our lives out for you in self-surrender. And so once more, the linking of covenant and sacrifice is on clear display here. It is incidentally by no means accidental that this confluence of Torah and sacrifice precipitated the emergence of the formal Israelite priesthood. With Moses, we begin to see 
the very early stages of the priesthood that would be put in place by God for the people. The book of Exodus details how Moses' brother Aaron and his sons were chosen as priests of Yahweh and charged with the ongoing task of worship and sacrifice. You see, our worship is a ministry that is priestly, beloved. Even today, our worship is priestly ministry unto the Lord. We see this prefigured in the priesthood that God establishes. It's all foreshadowed in that. We see hints of it. Our worship is a priestly ministry. So when we gather like this, we're not just getting together and seeking to go through empty religious motions. Well, you know, we, what happens on Sunday? Well, you know, on Sundays we kind of get together and we sing some songs. And we have, you know, do a few ditties. And it's not, it's not like that. This is not a concert. It's not a show. This is not a performance. It's worship. And there's a difference. It's a priestly ministry unto the Lord. And so we see that even here in this picture that we're seeing, this very early picture of the priesthood that we're seeing in Moses. Exodus details it. We hear of the elaborate instructions for the construction of the altars, the making of the vestments, and the preparation of a whole array of liturgical accoutrements all of it focused on the priestly sacrificial worship ministry unto the Lord. You see, God gave such detailed instructions for the temple and the altars and everything else, not just because, uh, well, it, it, and it wasn't really about this at all. We've misunderstood when we think, boy, God was sure lavish. You know, all that gold that He called Solomon to put together, all, those, all the fancy elements of the temple and everything. No, what, what, what it was, was even the temple, even the building of the temple was to be a sign of worship unto the Lord. That's why it was so elaborate. It was worship unto the Lord. It was to be a sign of adoration unto Yahweh. Even the designing of the temple. The altars the vestments that the priests would wear. It was all as worship unto... It wasn't, it wasn't a, a situation where God was just all hung up on all this gold and silver and elaborate, ostentatious kind of buildings and, and all this. No, it was to be all signaling worship unto the Lord. Worship was a significant matter. It still is. And it was very much an integral part of covenant and of Eucharist. And so this then is a perfect segue to the final great covenant that God cuts. He cuts covenant through Moses, but then God cuts covenant, again to use that typical biblical term, the cutting of covenant, 
he cuts covenant with Israel, which took place also during the time of King David. We just talked about the significance of worship. Perfect place to segue to David. David was a worshiping warrior, king. And the final great covenant that we look at in the Older Testament is this covenant cut with King David. After, again, after various types of tests, most notably his confrontation, armed only with a slingshot and faith, with the giant Goliath. Moses had the wilderness. David has his wilderness too, with King Saul on the run. But the first test was his test with the giant Goliath. And then, as I just mentioned, his long battle with the insecure and jealous Saul. David is in the wilderness. He's on the run. He's hiding out in caves. And he's saying, God, if, if, if I thought you called me. We, 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 we often think that God's call is going to look like just a, you know, a, a walk through the park. Easy breezy. Sunny and funny all the time. Woohoo! No, there's tests involved and, and immediately. And so David's hiding out in caves. He's been anointed as king. Saul knows what's going on. He knows that his season, God's season on him has passed, and he's feeling very jealous and insecure about it. And it passed because of his own disobedience. So David emerged as a worthy shepherd of Israel. And notice that David was also a shepherd. He was a shepherd before he was anointed king. God's idea of leadership is found in the picture of shepherds. God's idea of kingship is found in the picture of shepherds. Very different from the way we look at it in our culture and our world. Shepherds. So David emerges. After David had brought the Ark of the Covenant unto the city of Israel, or city of Jerusalem rather, pledging thereby Israel's fidelity to Yahweh, their faithfulness to Yahweh, the Lord spoke to the king through the prophet Nathan. Read it with me. It's on the, the here it is right here. Lift your voices nice and loud, will you? Let's read this together. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. We're starting to get messianic here in these words of the Lord. We're starting to see hints of God setting up His kingdom and the pictures forecasting it. David, he says, your kingdom, your throne will be established forever. 
Now, we're jumping through this quickly. There's a lot of things we're skipping over because we just don't have time to unpack all of it. So he speaks this through Nathan to David. Now, to Abraham. Go back to Abraham for a minute with me. Remember, to Abraham, God had promised descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky. And to David now, he promised a line of kingly successors, enduring, mysteriously enough, eternally. He says, your kingdom will be eternal. Well, what does that mean? I wonder if David understood what that meant. Both of these covenantal promises were expressions of the great biblical principle that self-surrender, self-donation leads to the increase of being. And that would be brought to fulfillment in the Christian reading through Christ and His body. So in light of what we've studied already, we shouldn't be surprised that this final covenant with David would also be accompanied again by sacrifice. After the death of David, his immediate successor, his son Solomon, undertook the enormous project of building a temple to Yahweh in the holy city of Jerusalem. In that place, tied so closely to the David line of kings, priests would for five centuries perform animal and grain sacrifice offerings. And then when the temple was rebuilt, because it had been destroyed, when it was rebuilt after the return from Babylon, the Babylonian exile that the people had been in, Israelite priests would carry on their sacrificial practice there until the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So this went on, sacrifice, offering, worship, accompanied by sacrifice. So for nearly 1,000 years, the, the Israelite nation ratified its covenant with Yahweh through the slaughter of beasts and the smoke of holocausts. They thereby massively demonstrated in a symbolic manner that the communion and life that Yahweh desired for His people would be made possible by an interior sacrifice, a pouring out of the self in a spiritual act of worship. Let me put it this way to help us understand. What, were we, what are we seeing happening here in all these years of offering and sacrifice this was a symbolic manner that was pointing forward to a time of interior sacrifice that would take place to where we read of things like in Romans 12, verse 1. Paul saying things like this. Offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. Because this is your spiritual act of worship. 1 Peter 2. Peter talks to us about how we are living stones in Christ Jesus. 
We are being fit together to be what? To be a temple, a tabernacle. Well, how about that? A living temple, a living tabernacle. The most beautiful tabernacle. Offering up sacrifices of worship through our very lives together. Notice it's corporate. It's not individual. It's a corporate. We are being fit together. It's a corporate thing, a collective community. Communion is happening. The richest and most significant liturgical act in the temple took place every year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary at the very center of the temple complex, and there he would slaughter a goat whose blood he would then sprinkle around the sacred place. Next, he would come out of the Holy of Holies passing through the symbolic veil and sprinkling the remaining blood on the gathered congregation. What's he doing? He was, of course, reenacting the scene from Exodus that we just looked at a few moments ago, also signaling Israel's gift of its lifeblood to God and God's pledge of forgiveness to Israel. In his own person, the priest was acting as a mediator between divinity and humanity. A priest offering sacrifice on behalf of the people and strangely enough, on behalf of Yahweh Himself. In the process, He was making symbolically real the restoration of creation according to God's intentions. Redeeming, rescuing, Rebuilding things after what had happened in Genesis. Now listen, please. Listen close. Because I know there, there's a lot here for us to try to comprehend in all of this. And we're just taking a, a quick cursive view at all of this. Even though covenant and sacrifice were defining elements of ancient Israelite religion. And even though the Jewish people understood themselves in and through these central themes, there is throughout the Older Testament biblical period a nagging sense that the covenant has never been truly fulfilled. And sacrifice never completely effective. No matter how many times the covenant was taught, renewed, reaffirmed, it was broken by stubborn, rebellious Israel. A stiff-necked people, as Exodus 2 calls them. A stiff-necked people. That was an expression to say you were stubborn and rebellious. And no matter how many times sacrifices were offered in the temple, Yahweh was still not properly honored and the people still not interiorly reformed, transformed. And no one expresses better this dissatisfaction than the prophet Isaiah. 
Speaking the words of Yahweh, Isaiah says, read it together with me. Lift your voices, will you? What makes you think I want all your sacrifices? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Why would God, who demanded sacrifice, who set this whole system up, why would He now seem so indifferent and even hostile to it? The answer comes with Isaiah's words again. Read them with me, will you? Next slide, please. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. You see, please listen, loved ones. What annoys Yahweh is not sacrifice in and of itself. After all, He set the whole system up. But the objective He set it up for was not being effective. He's not annoyed with sacrifice in and of itself. What, what Yahweh's annoyed with is sacrifice that has become divorced from the real work of compassion and justice from the demands of the covenant itself. The people were just offering up these empty religious ritualistic sacrifices. It meant nothing to them. This is what God's calling. We'll just do this. We'll go through the motions. But they were not with the sacrifice living out the covenant at the same time. Which involved fighting for the rights of widows, defending the cause of orphans, living compassionately, learning to do good, seeking justice, all of these things. Such sacrifice had devolved into an empty symbol, a meaningless ritual. The ultimate issue in blood sacrifice, beloved, is the attitude of the heart. And that was what was annoying God. The attitude of the heart. To be acceptable, the sacrifice must represent sincere devotion. God had had more than enough of animals that were insincerely offered. For sure, God's holiness required the blood for cleansing. But right relationship was the ultimate objective of his covenant. David reflects this in Psalm 51 when he states that God will not forgive false religious piety, but he will accept the sacrifice of what? Psalm 51, verses 17 and verse 19 in particular. A broken spirit, a broken humbled, and repentant heart. The prophet Jeremiah, because we're looking at Moses, David, and now the prophets. Isaiah, and then the prophet Jeremiah subsequently 
also shares much of Isaiah's deep impatience with the corruption of the Israelite people and their rulers. Nevertheless, he gives voice to a longing and a hope that must have been deeply planted in the collective consciousness of the nation of Israel. He expresses Yahweh's own pledge that he himself would one day fulfill the covenant himself and forgive the sins of the people directly himself. In the 31st chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah, we find these extraordinary words. Read them with me. Will you lift your voices? The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. Next slide. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Look at this. Read it loud with me. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's the covenant statement again. I will be your God. You will be my people. And now, watch this. God is not writing. He's not etching the instructions of the covenant on stone. He's etching His instructions on our hearts. So let's just take one more step here in conclusion. How will this renewal of the covenant take place? How exactly will Yahweh plant the law so deep in the children of Israel that their hearts will be given? They'll be given to the fulfillment of the covenant with a determined and deliberate intentionality. How is this going to happen? To find the answers, we must, must look at some mysterious texts in the book of the prophet Isaiah again. Texts that particularly fascinated the first Christians and Christ followers, our ancestors. In the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, we find reference to a figure called the servant. The servant of the Lord, who we are told in Isaiah 52, verse 13, will prosper and will be highly exalted. The nations of the earth will see him in his prominent position, but they will not be looking at a splendid warrior or a majestic victor. Instead, watch this, they will be amazed and astonished at how Isaiah 52, verse 14 his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, the description of this servant continues. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. 
And then the reason for his deformation and anguish is made clearer to us. Read it with me. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Lift your voices, will you? Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. The covenant of which Jeremiah speaks the writing of the law in the hearts of the people. I will put it so deep in their hearts, God says. This covenant would be effected through the sacrificial servant of whom Isaiah speaks. This is how this would happen. So having considered these many strains of Old Testament theology that we just quickly looked at this morning, and having seen the tight correlation between Jeremiah's covenant and Isaiah's suffering servant, we are now ready, finally, to speak of the Messiah and His sacrifice. And we'll look at that starting next week, so stay tuned.